The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are for informational purposes only and solely those of the podcast participants, contributors, and guests, and do not constitute an endorsement by or necessarily represent the views of the Hartford or its affiliates. You're listening to the Small Biz Ahead podcast, brought to you by the Hartford. This is Gene Marks with John A. DeConis, both from the Hartford, and welcome to the Hartford Small Business Podcast. We are really pleased to be here, um, you know, and, and talking to you about all things. I think today about keeping your business safe and healthy um, with our our favorite guest here, Kavita Trevetti. Kavita is uh, is is an epidemiologist, right? I always have a hard time pronouncing <laughs> that. Kavita, is that did I do that correctly? Yes, I'm an epidemiologist, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You've got your own consulting firm in the Bay Area, and you consult with companies, big and small, on basically how to keep their businesses safe and clean and uh, uh, hopefully in a good shape as uh, we're bringing employees and customers back. Is that also a fair statement to say? Yes, correct. And, And just kind of providing education as the science changes around COVID, yes. Good. And the website, by the way, is Trevetti Consults with an S on the end.com. But hey, look, let's get into some of the details. Both John and I have got a bunch of questions to hammer you with, Kavita, about because there is so much conflicting information. And, and, you know, and, and again, as business owners, we're trying to figure out how to do things the right way. And we also, at the same time, we don't want to overdo things. So let's start with John right now. John, I know you've got some burning questions that you want to ask Kavita. Go ahead, ask one. Yeah. So, I mean, Kavita, one, thank you for joining us again. It's, it's great to talk to you. And I, I'm really happy with kind of where we landed last time. But where we started to kind of leave off before I talked too much and we ran out of time was kind of around the notion of testing in mass. And with the recent changes kind of from the CDC, you know, encouraging folks to, to not necessarily get tested if they haven't been exposed or if they were asymptomatic or exposed to someone who was asymptomatic. I feel like it changed about three times in one day or I could be misremembering. And then kind of re-encouraging that testing. I, I just wanted to kind of get a pulse check, you know, especially as we think about bringing people back to work, you know, as people start to, to kind of adapt to these more broad phases of reopening, you know, how important is it to get tested right now? And, and if you have the time and, and capacity to do so, is there a shortage where we should really be kind of saving those for, for people who seem symptomatic and presumably positive? You know, should you kind of be, be doing such if you're not in a more severe kind of like risk scenario? What is that right now? And, and you know, does the volume of testing kind of help us get to somewhere sooner the more we can learn? Sure. Yeah. Re- good questions. Firstly, I think it's everyone agrees, um, including uh, public health and providers that if you are symptomatic and you have symptoms that are consistent with COVID-19, which, you know, that list of symptoms continues to grow. But if you have any of those symptoms, you should be tested. Uh, We also are having difficulty with false negatives. So let's say somebody goes in and gets tested who has symptoms consistent with COVID, yet the test is negative. Um, the recommendation would still be for them to isolate themselves uh, in order not to spread the infection to others. So diagnostic testing is, is of course, highly recommended. I think where we start to get a little bit of um, disagreement is when we talk when we talk about screening larger populations, um, when we talk about testing prior to activities, right? So in terms of screening, 
Um, so this would be something you might do for a school or something you might do for, you know, a, a larger setting of people that are going to be interacting with each other. There, there is also now some consensus that in that setting, it makes sense to have a test, but to get the res to have a test that you get the results quickly. Um, right now, many of our PCR tests that are being run across the country are taking up to a week or longer to get results back. And that that's just not really that helpful, right? So when you're talking about screening, you really want to look at what test is available in your area and how quickly you can get the results back. I think the other thing people are missing about these kind of screening tests is that just because you get tested doesn't mean that that result holds for, you know, a few weeks. That test is simply a data point for that period of time. So for the prior two weeks before you got that test, that test is then telling you if you potentially have the virus, whether it's via a PCR test or an antigen test. But but that just because you're negative on one day and then you go about living your life and doing things and exposing yourself to other people for the next 10 days, that test still doesn't hold up. And I, I think that is not quite understood. Right. So that test is only valid for that moment when you when you receive the, the information. I think the other thing that we are seeing as well around testing is really understanding which test you're getting and how to interpret those results. And th this is all, you know, more complicated than your listeners probably want to hear about, but it, it is important to qualify, hey, I got a test and this was the test I, I, I got so that the person on the other end can, can then interpret the, the positive or negative test results in an appropriate fashion. So um, yeah, and I agree with you. I think the testing recommendations have changed. I think many of us in the medical field did not necessarily agree with some of the uh, recommendations that came out of the CDC um, a few weeks ago. Um, but I would say in general, diagnostic testing still recommended that should be done through a healthcare provider. And even if those are negative, you know, we would still consider uh, symptoms that are consistent with COVID to equal isolation. And then secondly, if you're doing a screening test, just understanding that that test has limitations, but also is just one data point in probably all the tests people will receive uh, in the next in the next you know, year. Davida, how accurate are these tests in the end? I mean, I hear so many different opinions as to their level of accuracy? And is there one test that's more accurate than, than another? Yeah. So that good question. Also uh, sort of complicated. So, you know, the PCR test, with which is the polymerase chain reaction test, that test is considered by many as the gold standard approach. That test essentially takes the sample and then amplifies the sample multiple cycles, multiple times in order to decide whether or not that person has the virus. Even if the person has a very, very low amount of virus in their body, um, the PCR test may come back positive. We are not sure. I, I, actually, we know for certain that not everyone who tests positive by PCR are still infectious, right? So just because you have a very small amount of virus in your body, you know, three weeks after you've had symptoms and your PCR test is positive, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're still spreading the virus to others or that you have the ability to do that. It just means that the PCR test is super sensitive and it was able to find that virus in your body. Now, the other test that we're talking about is the rapid antigen test. And that test 
does not use amplification in the process. And if, if you're positive on that test, you have a very high viral load. And our interpretation of that means that you then are at a high uh, likelihood of transmitting the virus. So what we are talking about in terms of screening tests is not using the PCR test because we don't really want an overly sensitive test that identifies everybody with any amount of virus in their body. But we want to identify people that need to be isolated, which are people who have high viral loads. And so there is a lot of discussion about moving over to the rapid antigen test as a screening test um, and then uh, doing it more frequently, maybe every three days, so that the population you're trying to look at, you can quickly identify people that have a high viral load and, and take them out of circulation so that they don't transmit the disease to each other. Yeah. So I think there there is a distinction between the two. And um, again, you know, just because I hear this all the time, oh, I got a test. I'm, you know, I'm I'm negative. Well, which test did you get? And um, let's let's talk about, you know, what that really what what the, what that result really means. John, what do you think? So the PCR test, is that like a newer development? Because, or are they both the swabs? Like, how would you know the difference? Would you just have to ask your provider because of how it's actually managed in the lab? Yes, you would have to ask your provider. So early on, we simply had the PCR tests. And that, were, um, that was when you did the nasal swab that went all the way up to your, you know, essentially your brain, right? It went really high up into your nose. That, that was the only test we had available. But now you can get a PCR test either with saliva, you can get the PCR test with a, with a lower anterior nasal swab. Um, and then the antigen tests are also available in both ways. You can get those um, either with a nasal swab or with a saliva test. So you, know, you must ask your provider which test you're getting. Um, and that's the only way to know which one, which one you are having. I will say that most of the tests where you go to an urgent care center and get a test and result back in 15 minutes, those are rapid antigen tests. So most of the ones that we're doing in those settings are the, the, the rapid antigen tests. And then, of course, there's a whole other that we didn't even talk about, the, the serology, the antibody tests, right, that people were talking right. about early on. We're not even talking about those because I think we, we, we're pretty clear that in the acute situation, that is actually not a very useful test to, to obtain at this point. Right. And that's more to kind of say, like, if I had it. Like you would show kind of that you would at some point had been exposed, but might not have any virus or an active case. Correct. And, you know, we are not clear how long those antibodies stay around in the body. We think at least three months. Um, so just because you're antibody positive on one day doesn't mean four months later, you're still going to have those antibodies and that you're you know not going to get the virus again. So, you know, what's interesting there is, and I think this might be where our listeners are kind of thinking, too is, you know, when we talk about testing, that's obviously how a lot of these states and districts are determining what they consider their positivity rate, mm -hmm. which seem to be a, a big indicator on what you can do as a business or how you can operate. Mm -hmm. But I think what we're starting to see, too, is that, you know, states that were pretty gun-ho about, okay, when we hit this percentage, you know, we're going to do phase three, phase four, you know, phase whatever, they did start to see some spikes. You know, in the Northeast, I feel like we've been a little bit more conservative with our opening. You know, in Connecticut specifically, we're still in phase two and phase three is, I think, indefinitely on pause, you know, kind of because of the findings that happened in other metros and other states and to try and avoid kind of a fall time spike. Mm -hmm. Do you anticipate, you know, that becoming looser soon just from your exposure to kind of like data and what we're learning? 
is there still a lot unknown or is it still kind of like we need to go through the motions of a calendar year and see what really can compound it between like fall and allergies and flu season and back to school and, and all that? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of comments to that that question. I think number one, this virus has not behaved the way many of us epidemiologists or clinicians expected, right? So we had expected there to be a decrease in the number of cases over the summer. Um, we did not see that necessarily, right? We thought because the it was warmer that we would see um, a decrease in cases. We didn't see that. And in fact, we also did not expect to see children have this inflammatory syndrome. You know, we didn't expect that. We, um, you know, this this virus, I think, overall has behaved in a way that we had not expected. I think I may have talked about this before. I think um, the other thing about this virus that is really hard is that the spectrum of disease is so broad, right? Some people can have the virus and have zero symptoms, and other people have the virus and are in the ICU fighting for their life. So there are not many other pathogens or germs that cause this kind of spectrum of disease. So I think that is is one thing. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of confusion in the public about well, why are the recommendations changing? Well, because we just met the virus, you know, in December and January, and we are learning as we go. We have predicted things, unfortunately, sometimes you know, in the wrong in the wrong way. I think the other thing is that the the in, infection prevention measures that are very clear to uh, those of us that study this virus, such as wearing a face mask and um, physical distancing. I think those things um, we are now seeing, some communities are just sick of it and not interested in, in um, continuing to engage in this way. So I think as um, you know, we are, we're seeing some communities get tired of the infection prevention measures and, you know, I think the implementation and behavior change piece is, is not a small thing to consider, right? For example, in the Bay Area right now, we're not only, you know, wearing face masks, we're also dealing with, with poor air quality. So, you know, I think as all these things get compounded, people get tired of living the way we're living. And so that, that's when you'll see spikes in infections because people will say, you know, I haven't seen this friend down the street. I just want to have a drink with them. We're not going to have a face mask. We're going to be inside the house. And, and that's when I think we're, we're going to see more and more um, spikes occur. So to that, I would suggest really trying to continue the infection prevention measures that we are, are saying work. Uh, you know, time and time again, we are seeing that if people wear their face masks and are even exposed to people that are sick, um, they're not getting the illness. So we have we have some really wonderful case studies showing us that the face masks really work. And so I would just encourage our listeners to really consider uh, persevering in in their infection prevention, you know, household protocols, and and you know, the more we do this collectively as a community, the more we keep one another safe and keep our economies open, which I know is you know ultimately what 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 people are really hoping to do, continue their livelihood. Kavita, let me ask you about um, cleaning surfaces as well. <laughs> there, yeah, you know, there are a lot of measures that are being recommended to businesses schools as well and other facilities, you know, I mean, wearing masks is, it's obviously you wear a mask, it, it helps to reduce uh, the chance of the, of the virus being spread. I mean, that's obvious. And obviously social distancing also helps that as well. But boy, I, I do get some pushback from some of my clients. They're like, you know, 
you know, I've got this person going around cleaning our surfaces. And like the minute one person touches it, particularly if that person might be infected with COVID, you know, it's, it's, that's it. You know, I mean, does cleaning services really make a difference or do you think that it's more for show than anything else? Yeah. So, you know, I got to give a shout out there. Um, I was the store Ulta. I had to stop in there the other day and they were the first like national chain because I've been really trying to stay home, but I had to pick something up. It was incredible how they they were rinsing and washing like they had the plexiglass up at the counter and like the credit card machines and the surface. So they'd only let one person up at the counter at a time would come out, wipe everything down with, you know, what smelled like a like a pneumonia based cleaner and then go back and invite you up and then do the same thing. And it, it, it took a little while, but it was impressive to see the attention okay. to detail. So, so yeah. So first of all, I think if you're going to go to that level of diligence, John, I think that that would actually have an impact, you know, but now I'm talking about like, I was at a client yesterday and they're like a distributor of, of machine parts. So, you know, they're not, you know, and there's people all over the place, you know, working and going here and there and so they don't have the time to sit there and like follow all the employees around and wipe, you know, like, mm-hmm. like spray disinfectant right behind them. So when I just had the owner asked me, saying, this is crazy. I mean, like we could clean this place once a day or twice a day, but is that even really making a difference here? Or are we wasting right. our time? So, so I think, um, again, this is where we kind of messed up with public health a little bit in the beginning. The focus in the very beginning, I think, was don't wear the face masks and clean surfaces, right? That that was initially kind of what we what, what we initially yeah, heard. Like your shopping bags, you know, I get a delivery from Instacart and we're sitting there like you're wiping down our shopping exactly. bags for an hour, right? Which exactly. now nobody seems to be doing. Although it is still a viable theory on how you can get sick, we know now that the person-to-person transmission, the the transmission between adult to another adult that is more of a concern, right? That That is where we are having outbreaks occur. So, um, you know, although the surface transmission, like I said, the theory, in theory, it makes sense, right? Like you are sick, you cough on something, you cough on your hand, you touch a surface, then then somebody else comes by, like let's say in that factory that you were in, Gene, and, and then somebody, another worker happens to touch that exact surface, maybe within 15 minutes, the virus happens to get on their hand, then they have to touch their eyes, their nose, their mouth for right. it to actually enter their, you know, there are many, there are many steps that need to occur for that transmission to, to happen. Whereas let's say two of the workers in the break room eating lunch, sitting near each other, that's a much more viable transmission story, right? Like they're talking, but droplets are flying between them, even just sure. in talking, and that's how they get infected. So I think the focus really needs to be back on person-to-person transmission, wearing the face masks, and physical distancing, as you already as you already stated. I think cleaning surfaces is certainly a good practice, but does not need to be the main focus. I think things like making sure workers don't come into the office sick with symptoms. So having a really non-punitive sick leave policy in, in these times is, is really important. Um, I think making sure you have a good screening protocol in place, whether that's electronic or maybe even a paper form they have to fill out before they come in. So they're attesting to their lack of symptoms. You know, I think those things, and also then of course, within the workspace, 
wearing a face mask all the time, especially if you're indoors and physically distancing. And then, you know, I, I make I make fun of the the two workers sitting in the break room having lunch, but that's a real issue. We've had outbreaks in hospitals, right? Where people are taking care of COVID patients because they're sitting in a break room having a pizza party, 17 people get sick. So like those issues, those things I would rather companies focus on as opposed to the cleaning and disinfection. I want them to clean. I want them to use a disinfectant from the EPA uh, list that is active against coronavirus and, and active against this coronavirus. But I'm not sure that I need them to be cleaning all the time in the space. I'd rather them focus on the other things that we just talked about, screening protocols, a non-punitive sick leave policy, and where do people take their masks off safely and have, you know, have lunch, have snacks. I think those things are actually going to be more effective than, than worrying about cleaning the, uh, the premises, you know, often. Got it. Got it. Now, um, Kavita, you live in the Bay Area, correct? So have you, um, I, I, are restaurants allowed to serve indoors yet in your area? No, we have not seen that. We are only seeing restaurants um, serve outdoors. outdoors. Yeah, outdoors. Right. And then we, like like John just mentioned, we have some really great um, policies about, you know, touchless um, touchless delivery. So you can order from a restaurant and go up and just pick up the the, the, the bag outside or the guy comes to you to your car and drops it off in your car in your trunk. So no, we don't we we don't have any indoor um, indoor eating as of yet. So the reason why I ask that is that so in, in Philadelphia they just opened up to twenty five percent capacity, and mm-hmm. uh, in Pennsylvania now it's fifty percent capacity. Hopefully mm-hmm. Philadelphia will will make its way up. So at some point the Bay Area where you live, restaurants are going to be allowed to let people sit indoors. And it's probably going to start out at the 25% capacity, right? Mm-hmm. When that happens, will you eat inside of a restaurant? I will not. I, you know, I'll tell you in the last six months, has it been six months since March? Mm-hmm. We have not gone inside anyone else's home. We have only interacted with people outdoors. Um, we have had meals with other families outdoors, but we sit like 10 feet apart when we have the meals. So no, I'm not going to feel comfortable going inside um, a restaurant here, especially as you know, if transmission rates continue to 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 stay as high as they are, or even continue to go up. I I I will not um, take okay. that risk. At what point do you think you will feel comfortable? And I ask this because you know we have a lot of people that own restaurants and retail stores that listen to this right. podcast. So right. what, what what would what would when will you be comfortable to go into a restaurant? I think that's an interesting question. I, I will say CDC came out with a with um, a study just this week, just yesterday, I believe, where they looked at like 500 patients, COVID positive people um, in the past few weeks, and uh, a large majority of them had eaten indoors. Um, and so that was the number one risk factor that the, the people that were positive had endorsed um, kind of across the board. So I, I, I will continue to support our local restaurants by ordering takeout. We order takeout at least a couple of times a week just for that purpose, um, just to you know make sure that we're supporting the local economy. And I do take note of who, when I go pick up, uh, just as John just mentioned, like I, I take note of what infection prevention measures are in place at the restaurant that make me feel comfortable with going back again. But I, and I may consider eating outside if I feel like the tables are sufficiently, you know, distanced at some point, but I, it really will depend on uh, transmission rates and also, you know, 
yeah, I think also when and if a vaccine does come out and, and uh, I know a majority of people have gotten it in the community, I think that would be the, the time that I would really feel comfortable going into a restaurant and eating without a mask on. Fair enough. John, what do you got? Anything else? What's interesting there is actually the comment on the vaccine. So obviously that's a hot topic right now and, and people talking about one, if this is a vaccine, vaccinatable, is that a word? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, disease. And then two, if it's something that, you know, we can expect to see this year, next year, even as soon as, you know, um, you know, they're saying kind of before November and kind of a range of opinions and debate on if we see something that fast, if it would have had the time to go through like the proper channels of testing to really explore its safety, to understand its long-term impact. Like, do you have any thoughts there just as someone who's closer to that type of work? Yeah, definitely. So um, yes, a lot of discussion about vaccines. You know, we have at this point, eight, I believe, eight companies um, that have uh, vaccine trials in the phase three, you know, in, in that realm. We need to go through the phase three trials in order to be sure that the vaccine is both safe and efficacious. The, the, these vaccines uh, and the data safety kind of monitoring boards that the data has to go through, these are boards that have been in place for, you know, decades. They have algorithms and protocols for how they deal with adverse events um, that may be due to the vaccine. So um, I think that I don't see how that process can be sped up. Uh, and I don't see how those data safety monitoring boards pressured in any way to um, show that the data is, you know, more positive than it actually is. So I, I highly doubt there will be a vaccine available before uh, November, um, but I, I will remain very interested in what the data out of these vaccine trials shows us. And, you know, if they enroll the 30,000 patients and the majority of patients after a few months still don't have any um, side effects, the ones that uh, receive the vaccine itself, you know, that will be very promising and very positive. So I think the other thing to note is that, you know, these vaccine trials need to go on for some time to enroll all the patients, but also to see if there are any longer term side effects from the vaccine itself. So, you know, I, I'm really excited. I think that the data we have coming out so far has been quite positive out of the phase one, phase two uh, trials for these vaccines. So I'm cautiously optimistic, I would say, but I but I also will be very um, interested in reading the safety uh, data that comes out of the trials. And I really hope, you know, it's exciting to have all this attention on a vaccine because we've never had this much attention in our lifetimes on the development of a vaccine. But I really hope that that folks are swayed into taking it because if we make a vaccine that is safe and efficacious and then the majority of the population is too um, worried to actually take it, well, then that's actually not going to help us um, in getting back to, you know, pre-pandemic ways. So, so I hope people are open to taking it if the medical community can show that it is indeed um, safe and efficacious. Just as kind of a follow-up there too, you know, I know there's also been talks about like therapeutics, right? It's not pure vaccines, but things that might reduce your risk or, you know, be effective if you do catch it. Um, you know, there's been a lot of interest now in kind of HIV medicine and, and things like PrEP, right? So I think of what's been in kind of some of the medical journals around like Truvada, or I'm going to say this wrong, but Redismidir, 
Remdesivir. Remdesivir, yeah. Mm-hmm. Remdesivir, yeah. Um, and those seem to be showing some some promising kind of correlations to lack of either impact of the disease or ability to contract. But mm-hmm. do you think we might be in a situation where it is something that there's more of a consumer therapeutic before a true vaccine or is everything kind of up in the air right now? No, we, we have made a lot of strides um, just in the last six months around therapeutics. Um, you know, something that, that I, I may have mentioned on the last podcast is that, you know, we have approximately 4,000 papers published on COVID-19 every week. Um, and the majority majority of funding that is happening right now for researchers across the country is funding towards COVID-19. So people that were studying, let's say, hypertension before um, are, are now studying hypertension in COVID, right? So like the, the, there is a lot of information coming out about COVID and we do know more about um, how to treat patients if they do get the infection. So, you know, uh, promising um, Studies have showed us that remdesivir definitely helps if you're ox- if you are in the hospital and require oxygen. We know that um, steroid treatment uh, when you're in the hospital also and sick can reduce your need to develop uh, an oxygen requirement. You know, re- uh, can reduce your need to develop or, or, or needing um, mechanical ventilation. So we have um, you know a few therapeutics that we know are helpful and you know, are being used right now in our hospitals um, and are certainly reducing the length of stay for some of these patients and are uh, improving survival. So so um, we know much more now than we did six months ago, and we will know even more in another few months about, about how to treat patients successfully with this virus. The, the only other caveat to that I'll, I'll just mention is that we do also unfortunately know that young people, there was a study that also just came out a couple of days ago, young people um, are, are uh, having difficulty fighting the virus as well. I think early on, we were really focused on our, our vulnerable populations, our nursing home patients, our uh, patients with underlying health disorders. But we are learning that even young people um, are, are having some difficulty with the virus as well. Um, so, so I think, you know, this isn't one of those times where young people should feel and children should feel that, oh, we're, we're not getting as much of this virus. We can just go out and, and, and do our thing. You know, we are seeing some really um, sad outcomes and poor outcomes in the younger population also. So, um, so you know, I, I, we are, we're in a much better place now than we were six months ago, certainly in terms of therapeutics. So Kavita, I know we only just have a couple minutes left and I, I, I just wanted to end it with a, a personal question. I'm, so I'm, I'm looking at my calendar now and um, I am scheduled to travel to fly to Minneapolis on October 27th and spend a night there uh, mm-hmm. for a work thing. So um, there are a lot of other people like myself that are uh, getting back to traveling or will be getting back to traveling in the next few months, we hope. So what advice do you have for me for not dying? So, well, um, well, Don't you know, go. yeah, no, no, no. If you, if you travel by car, you certainly have a higher risk of, you know, dying than you do by airplane, right? Good certainly point. number one. Number two, I would say many airlines are doing a really good job of requiring uh, face coverings and airports are also requiring that as well. So um, uh, I think that that is very positive. We have some uh, case reports of people who were ill when they got on the plane, but because they were masked and other people were masked, um, the virus was not able to be transmitted. So um, my recommendation would be 
well, number one, decide if it's really that important to go on this trip. I, I think we only should be making trips um, at this point uh, that are that are really crucial. So that's number one. Number two, if you still need to go on the trip, definitely, of course, make, make sure you wear a face covering. If I were you, I would not touch the face covering once you put it on, it, you know, in the airport, uh, maybe once you get on the airplane and just just you know, don't fuss with it again until you you get out of the airport on the other end of Minneapolis, um, if that's possible. And then secondly, um, you know, if you are flying on a plane where they are not able to keep the center seats open or, you know, not able to keep distance between people, um, then I would consider a face shield. And that was going to be one of the other things I mentioned today, a face shield in addition to a face mask. Um, and that is because, so, so I may have mentioned this before, but um, a face covering provides, you know, source control. You decrease the amount of virus in the environment, but the um, face shield provides you barrier control. So it's like the plexiglass that you see in the grocery store, right? Um, the, the, the face shield allows you um, to have the barrier against um, virus that may be traveling in the environment, um, that get get around other people's face coverings. So um, I would I would suggest uh, considering a face shield and a face mask um, in any setting in an indoor setting like like an airplane where you cannot maintain physical distance from from other people. Kavita Trivedi is the president, founder, CEO, right? Kavita of yes. Trivedi Consults, which yes. is a T R E V I. T-R-I-V-E-D-I consults with an S dot com. Um, this has been a great conversation. If you're looking for help and getting some advice and consulting work to make your business safe and healthy for your workers and your employees and your customers, Kavita is definitely a great person to speak to. Uh, John, thank you. This is a, you know, my co-host was a, you know, ch checking in by phone, uh, made this conversation really good. And we appreciate Kavita, all of your time and the answers to our question. For more information and advice on running your business, please visit us at the Hartford Small Biz Ahead website. Thank you everyone for listening to this podcast and we look forward to uh, joining you on our next segment. Take care. Mm -hmm.